0: For those of you who are regulars here at City Church, we'd just like to challenge you um, you, to remember us in your year-end giving. Many of you know that we began a capital campaign. Uh, We had a capital campaign earlier this year. Uh, The Lord was very gracious. You guys were very generous. You gave generously so that we could purchase the building and begin a renovation project. We also had to take out a pretty significant loan from the bank and One of the things that's happened in this process is that the bank has asked uh, the Board of Elders to sign on personally to guarantee that loan, and part of that's because they noticed that our giving compared to last year was down a little bit, and I think that's because they wouldn't include the capital campaign that we did in uh, our records of our giving. We actually raised more money this year than than last year, but uh, it's because a lot of it was designated for the capital campaign. So there's a lot of elders and myself who are on the line personally uh, for this loan. However, if by the end of the year we raise enough money, we have, enough, we have a good enough year-end giving, uh, then we would actually be able to take our names off of that and not have to personally guarantee that loan. So if you guys would, as you think about uh, year-end giving, please include City Church uh, in that, okay? Enough about money. Let's, uh, let's look to the Lord in prayer. Can you do that with me? Just bow your head, let's pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, as we approach the subject that we're going to approach today, it is a very serious one, it's one that you take very seriously, it's one that we should take very seriously. So I pray that you would prepare our hearts for what you have to say to us today. There are people here today that perhaps just came with a friend, perhaps they're not sure about, you know, this whole church thing, they're not sure what they believe about you, and Lord, I pray that you would speak to them today. And, Lord, for those that uh, came here today, they've they've been here many times before, and they, they would consider themselves to be believers in Christ. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them, too. Make yourself real. Make yourself known to them today. Challenge them in their walk with Christ. And, Lord, I pray that you would challenge me as well because I need to grow in my walk with Christ. Thank you for giving us the opportunity this morning to worship together. And, our Lord, it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Back in the 1970s, long before I was even born, <laughs> don't laugh at that, uh, a highly respected psychiatrist by the name of Carl Menninger, uh, of the famed family that founded the Menninger Psychiatric Clinic, shocked the world with a book that was entitled, Whatever Became of Sin. Menninger observed that in order to avoid the gravity of sin, society had even then, back in the 70s, dropped the word sin. From its vocabulary. And he says this. Just listen to this. He says, It was a word that was once in everyone's mind, but is now rarely, if ever, heard. Does that mean that no sin is involved in all of our troubles? Has no one committed sin? Where indeed did sin go? And he asks, what became of it? Meninger argues that uh, throughout the book, that though we may try to remove sin from our vocabulary, the sense of guilt of sin still remains in the human heart and mind and is responsible not only for world destruction but also self-destruction that often Uh, manifests itself in many medical and psychiatric illnesses. How would you like that? How would you like to go to your doctor? Could you imagine going to your doctor and the doctor asking, is there any sin that could be causing, any sin in your life that could be causing these stomach ailments that you have or this nervous thing that you've got going on or the anxiety that you are feeling or the depression that you are feeling? How would you like that? Can you imagine that? I suspect that Menninger's book, if it were written today, would not garner much attention. It certainly wouldn't garner much support. Because I think if you were to take an informal poll sometime with the people in your relational world, and, uh, you know whether they're Christians or not, and if you were to ask them simply, what, is, what's, what do you think is wrong with the world? In, in my experience, people will say things uh, like too much government or uh, maybe too little education, not enough economic opportunity, uh, those kinds of things. Seldom, though, does anyone ever reply with the one small world that the Bible argues is the singular great problem of the world attaching to and destroying like a cancer everything that is beautiful, good, and true in the world. And that word is sin. Now, I realize... That to many of you, you know, the idea that sin is the great problem of the world, I, I realize that to many of you that sounds primitive, it sounds archaic, maybe even unintelligent. And yet, sin, the Bible says, is the great tragedy of the human race. Not natural disasters, not terrorist states not nuclear, or biological, or environmental threats, not economic downturn, not political upheaval, not plague, not the cancellation of your favorite TV program. None of those things compares with the tragedy of sin when it comes to adverse effects on humankind and the cosmos. Well, we're in a series uh, on the first half of the Gospel of Mark where we've been trying to understand on the basis of firsthand accounts uh, of jesus we 've been trying to figure out who Jesus is and what He has to say, and interestingly enough, Jesus has something to say about this thing called sin and I think it 's urgent that we hear it this morning. so if you have a Bible with you this morning, either in a hard copy or digital form, turn in it to mark chapter eight uh, Mark. Chapter 8. I want to welcome those of you who have been joining us by, who are joining us this morning by our podcast or our app. We're glad that you have joined us, but I do want to tell you that you just missed a fantastic time of worship and preparation of heart led by Jake Fuller, our worship pastor, and we would invite you to actually join us uh, in person here sometime. We've been in this series on the first half of the Gospel of Mark for quite some time. Believe it or not, we only have two more weeks before we're finished with that series Now, we'll come back and finish the Gospel of Mark next year, uh, later uh, in the year, but uh, we're just two weeks away from being done with this particular series on the first half of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to look today at verse, uh, we're going to start at verse 11. In order to finish uh, in just a couple of weeks, I'm going to have to skip verses 1 through 10. But let me just summarize by saying that in verses 1 through 10, Jesus performs another Miraculous feeding of thousands of people using only a few loaves of bread, which gives him the occasion to use the perfect metaphor through which to speak to his disciples and speak to us about sin. Let's start reading at verse 11. The Pharisees came and they began to question Jesus. To test him, they asked him for a sign from heaven. Now, remember, he just did a miracle. He just did a feeding of the five, uh, not of 5,000, but a whole bunch, of, whole bunch of people, thousands of people. He just did a miraculous feeding. Had just a few loaves of bread, broke them all up. Uh, you know, there's enough, enough left over, like seven baskets still of, of bread left over after that. But they're asking for another sign. Jesus sighs deeply in verse 12 and says, why does this generation ask for a miraculous sign? I tell you the truth, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat, and crossed to the other side. The disciples had forgotten to bring bread, (laughs) except for one loaf they had with them in the boat. Now they just, remember, they just came off this great miracle of bread being fed to everybody, and they forgot to bring any with them, okay? Jesus says to them, be careful, Jesus warned them, watch out for the yeast, underline that word yeast, Watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. They discussed this with one another and they said, it's because we have no bread. (laughs) So Jesus teaches, he's teaching them this profound lesson about sin using a bread metaphor. And when he's done, they put their heads together collectively and conclude, it's because we have no bread. (laughs) Verse 17, aware of their discussion, Jesus asked them, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? And you kind of get the sense, don't you, that Jesus is more than a little frustrated with these guys. There are some people who don't believe in the Bible because they will argue, well, it's a book written by men to get people to buy into their ruse uh, about Jesus. I give you this story as evidence against that argument. I don't know how to say it any more graciously than to say, those very men look like dopes here. If they're trying to build credibility for their new and very dangerous movement that is a ruse, they're not doing a very good job. Would you agree? I mean, they really look silly here. How many people would want to follow people like this? Okay. I want to focus. I really want to spend our time this morning on what Jesus says in verse 15. And and here's why. When Jesus warned his disciples at the beginning of verse 15, when he says, be careful, he chooses a word that is rarely used. In the New Testament. Uh, it's, the, it's the Greek word diasteleto, diasteleto. It's actually much, much stronger than, than be careful. Diasteleto was used in other Greek literature to mean very strict orders. Like the kind of orders that are so clear you understand. Like there is to be no messing around. You got the orders, right? Like I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a germaphobe. Like, I, I get really creeped out about germs. And when my kids were little, and we would walk into, like, a gas station bathroom, before we would, I, I, got, I have three boys, before we'd walk in, uh, I'd say to them, I'd say, okay, now, everyone, I'd, line, I'd say, you guys look me right here in the eyes, got me? Hear me on this. Make no mistake, don't touch anything. And then I'd say, hands up in the air, and we'd all walk in with our hands up in the air uh, like this, Okay. That's the sense of diastiletto, okay? That's the sense of it. So what Jesus wants to say about sin here is of utmost importance to him, and it should be to us as well. And so Jesus says to them, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and that of Herod. Why does Jesus compare sin to yeast? I'd like to suggest this morning three lessons about sin that Jesus wants us to understand that come from actually uh, exactly how yeast actually works in bread. Now let me give you the three first and then I'll explain each. Here they are. The first one is sin works inside out. The second one is sin spreads rapidly. And then the third one is that sin devours the sweetness of life. That's what Jesus is teaching us about sin. I'm going to take the first one if you didn't get them. Uh, if you didn't get them written down, that's okay, because you'll see them up here on the screen. First one is this. Let's start there. Like yeast, sin works inside out. Ancient people really didn't understand the chemistry behind yeast. They just knew that if you put yeast like into dough, once you baked it, it would rise. Now see, if you saw two bakers working on dough in the early stages one guy working on dough with no yeast and another guy working on dough with yeast, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference from the outside at all. Because yeast does its work in a way that it starts on the inside in a hidden way and then it manifests itself outside in the rising of the dough. And what Jesus was trying to get across to the disciples about the Pharisees, he said, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. What he wanted to get across to the disciples about the Pharisees is that this was a group of people whose attention, their whole focus in their life was just on the externals of life, their behavior, uh, their appearance, their rituals. And Jesus was again and again and again trying to get across to them, the Pharisees, as well as to his disciples, the idea that sin does its primary work internally in the hidden motives of the heart. Sin is a, is, it's, it's a matter of thoughts and intentions, and motives, and orientations. Let me put it this way. Let me try to say it this way. Uh, The difference between sin and grace in the heart is an invisible but utterly distinct difference of spirit. And here's how it goes. The spirit of sin says this. It says, your life for mine. That's the essence of sin. That's the spirit of sin your life for mine in other words my life is way more important than yours the spirit of grace is my life for yours I'm willing to give up my life for your life And you see at every uh, at every spot uh, at every moment of the day you can choose one or the other for instance you could cut in line in, in front of somebody, that's your life for mine. Or you can let somebody into line ahead of you, that's my life for yours. At the heart of everything, that's what sin and that's what grace are. And Jesus is saying to the disciples about the Pharisees, he's saying, he's saying do you not see, no matter what you see on the outside, He says, yes, they give their money to the poor. Yes, they're very moral. Yes, they are sexually pure. Yes, they go to church all the time. And yet, internally, their whole attitude is, your life for mine. And he wants the disciples to understand, if that's the operating system of your heart, it will destroy you. As I'm going to show you in just a second. If that's the operating system of your heart, it will destroy you. This is why Jesus says in such strong language, in such urgent terms, watch out uh, for the yeast of the Pharisees. Watch out for the kind of sin that the Pharisees practice. It works from the inside out. You can't see it on the inside, but it's working, and it's destroying their lives. second reason Jesus compares sin to yeast is that like yeast, sin spreads rapidly. Like yeast... Sin spreads rapidly. Now, I don't know if you know this. I, I certainly did not know any of this until I started doing my research on it. But back in the day, bakers would take dough with yeast in it, and before they put it into the oven, they'd pinch off a, a, a lump of the dough. And because the yeast in it spread so rapidly, they would take it and they would they put it away in a separate area to make sure it didn't affect. Uh, excuse me, didn't affect the other dough that was around. And then they would bake the rest of the bread. But here was the good thing. When they got a new batch of dough, they'd take that little piece uh, of dough with yeast in it and they'd stick it in that new dough and immediately it would work itself into the dough and it would spread very, very rapidly so that that dough would rise uh, as well. One of the reasons that Jesus warns the disciples with such, with such strong language and urgency about sin is that he wants them to understand That you have to be vigilant about dealing with sin in your life when you become aware of it. Sin is like, uh, it's like Oreo cookies. You ever try to eat just one? You cannot eat just one Oreo cookies. In fact, studies have shown that they're more addictive than cocaine, and I believe that to be true. (laughs) In the same way, you can't just sin like once and then stick it in a corner of your life and say, uh, don't don't bother me anymore. It doesn't work that way. The 17th century theologian Richard Baxter once wrote this. He said, Lay siege to your sins and starve them out by keeping away the food and fuel which is their maintenance and life. See, if you if you sin alone, if you say, excuse me, if you leave sin alone, if you say, well, uh, you know, there it is. It's just kind of over there in the corner of my life. I'm not going to pay attention to it. Jesus wants you to understand, it will not leave you alone. Okay. It spreads very quickly. Now, let me give you an example that I think is very relevant to our culture today. Cynicism. Cynicism. We live in a very cynical culture. At its core, cynicism is a defensive posture that we take to protect ourselves from being hurt here's the way it usually works okay way cynicism usually develops is that someone in your life so let me say this way someone uh, like you you have some uh, idealistic standard some expectation okay and someone or something disappoints you and it hurts very very deeply so let's say someone you respect has done you wrong Or they let you down in some way. Maybe it was a guy. Maybe it was a company that you worked for. Maybe it was your parents. I don't know. Here's the thing. If you keep that cynicism, that sin of cynicism alive, it will spread uh, through you like yeast through dough very rapidly. And here's what I mean. How do you keep a resentful, uh, cynical thought alive? How do you do that? Well, it's fairly simple. You feed it. Just a little bit. You feed it just a little bit. You replay the tapes of what the person who disappointed you did and you allow it to hurt you over and over and over again. And you remind yourself of how badly it hurt you. And after repeating it many times in your head, you swear to yourself that you will never let it hurt you again. And soon you begin to notice that your hurt has spread beyond just the person or just the company or just the the people who hurt you. It's begun to spread across the entirety of your relationship with those people. And beyond that, every time you see them, you begin to anticipate that they're going to hurt you uh, just like they did before. And you refuse to let that happen. And then it begins to spread uh, beyond your attitude to those people. It spreads to other people like them. You anticipate their hurt, that they're going to do to you what someone else did to you. This is cynicism spreading through your soul like a fast-developing cancer. And it begins to become a very part, very much a part of who you are as a person, cynical. You can keep it alive by feeding it, or you can fight it. You can challenge it. You can challenge every motion of it. Whenever you see it come up, you begin to root it out. You argue against it. You forgive. You trust God with the pain, with the hurt. And you go out again, and you assume the best in other people instead of anticipating that they're going to hurt you. It's one or the other, you see. Because if you don't forgive and trust, if you just try to leave it alone, it will not leave you alone. It will spread, and it will take over your entire life. This is why Jesus says, Beware. Watch out, be very careful. The stiletto wants you to understand it. sin will take over your life if you don't deal with it. And then third, third reason that Jesus compares sin to yeast is that like yeast, sin devours the sweetness of life. It devours the sweetness of life now. You may already know this. Again, I, I didn't know this until I started doing research. But if you leave yeast in bread too long uh, without baking it, it, uh, it devours, it takes away the sweetness uh, of the bread. Did you know that? How many, of you, how many of you knew that? Raise your hand if you knew that. Okay. Quite a few of you knew that. I did not. If you leave the yeast in long enough, it will eventually turn the whole dough so sour that it becomes inedible. You see, Jesus strongly warns the disciples because he wants them to understand this. If you leave sin in your life, if you don't deal with it, if you don't, as Richard Baxter said just a moment ago, lay siege to it, it'll take the sweetness right out of your life. Let me go back to our cynicism example. Let Let me show you how this works. If you continue to replay the tapes of what someone did to you over and over again, either it will break out someday... And you will verbally, maybe even physically, do something antagonistic or violent to those people who hurt you and get into all of the terrible trouble that will come with it. Or if it doesn't break out, it'll break in. And you know what that means? It means it will begin to sour your whole life. Your whole life. How does it sour your whole life? Well, like, like, like this, for example. You'll say, well, well, they hurt me. And then it begins to spread. We talked about it earlier. You'll look at other people and you'll say, well, they're probably going to hurt me too. And so instead of making yourself vulnerable and assuming the best about these other people that you have met, you will begin to protect yourself from them. And because it spreads, you will begin to do this more and more with more and more people in your life until you find that, uh, yourself isolated and distrusting of everyone. And what's going on when that happens? What's going on? Exactly what Jesus was talking about. Sin has begun to take the sweetness of relationships out of your life. And you find yourself lonely and unable to really enter into relationship with anyone. And sour because you are so cynical. You're just not very pleasant to be around. It devours all of the sweetness in your life. It will. It will absolutely do that. And so, so you know, the, the thing with sin is uh, it just sucks the sweetness right out of your life. You have to forgive people and trust God or perish. Deal with sin or let it spread out and let it just devour all of the sweetness in your life. Let me give you another example of how this works. Let's say you're married. And let's say that you uh, begin to have lustful thoughts about someone to whom uh, you're not married. Here's the thing. You can't just have one fantasy about a relationship with another person. It leads to uh, other fantasies about that person. And then it will lead to other fantasies about other persons. And then what's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you. It will either break out... By becoming something that leads you to, adul- to adultery and unfaithfulness and all of the recriminations and all of the guilt and all of the legalities that are gonna happen as a result of that, or it will break in. You keep it inside, you harbor it. You think you could just control it, but you can't. It will spread, it will break out into other parts of your life. Do you know what's gonna happen? You know what's gonna happen? it will suck your ability to enjoy the sweetness of your relationship with your spouse out of that relationship completely. That's what it does. Why? Why does it do that? Here's why. Because no human being, no human being can live up to fantasies. Your partner will never be as good as those fantasies of the other people. All of your enjoyment of your spouse will be gone. That's how it works. Sin spreads quickly, and it sucks the sweetness right out of your life. And I could give you more examples. We could talk about lies. We could talk about envy. But you you get the gist of how this works. Jesus is warning the disciples in no uncertain terms, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Herod, because it will spread, and it will suck the sweetness right out of your life. That's what he's doing. It works inside out, it spreads rapidly, and it sucks the sweetness out of life. That's, that's sin. Now, I, I want to close by, by going back to the beginning of this passage, to the run-in that Jesus has with the Pharisees uh, back in verse 11. The Pharisees, you'll remember, we talked about it just a moment ago, they, they've demanded a sign uh, from Jesus. In other words, they want a miracle. Uh, they're saying to Jesus, you know, look, we're having trouble believing in you as Messiah, so would you please give us, uh, just give us a miracle that will totally convince us? And did you notice Jesus' response? Uh, he said no. Now, what's really odd about that answer, first of all, is that Jesus has given them plenty of miracles throughout the book of Mark already. On the other hand, what's so odd about that answer is, why would Jesus say no when he has just uh, been doing miracles? And in fact, if you read on after this, he's going to do more miracles. So why would he say no? What is he, what, what's that about? Why, why would he say no to them? Well, I want you to write this down. This is, this is the last point of the morning. Just write this down, that the essence of sin is a proud denial of grace. That's the essence of sin. It's a proud denial of grace. And I want you to understand that here's why the Pharisees couldn't believe. They said that the problem is Jesus just hasn't done a big enough miracle. We need a bigger sign. But that wasn't their real problem. Their real problem was that Jesus didn't fit their expectations of a Messiah. Jesus was doing lots of miracles, but they, but they were redemptive miracles. He was healing people. He wasn't doing what the Pharisees wanted. He wasn't casting down the Roman Empire. He wasn't talking about political and military strategy and power and rewarding the good people like the Pharisees. He had actually come as a Messiah of grace to forgive. And the Pharisees, see, they didn't see that they needed that. They wanted a Messiah who would reward them for being good leaders and who would overthrow the Roman Empire. But Jesus had not come as a Messiah of strength. He came as a Messiah of weakness. He came as a humble teacher. There was was plenty of evidence that Jesus was the Messiah. But the Pharisees, because of their expectations, they wouldn't see it. And as a result, they blame their unbelief on Jesus. And they say, you know... They say, you know, your your whole problem, Jesus, is that you haven't given us enough of a sign. And Jesus says, don't you see? Like, you will never be satisfied. If you deny the whole idea of grace, you'll never be satisfied with signs. You will always be asking for signs and signs and more signs, and you'll never be satisfied. I saw this, by the way, played out. Uh, on a stage at, uh, at IU a couple of years ago. Went up there to see my oldest son, and uh, they were having a debate between a, a Christian professor from MIT and a philosophy pres- professor from IU. And the IU professor said something to the effect of, and I'm not quoting it exactly right, but this is something to the effect of this. He said, if God wanted us to believe, he should have given us more visible and unmistakable signs of his presence. And I thought to myself, you know, I wasn't part of the debate, but I sure wanted to be in that moment because I was thinking to myself, you mean like a virgin birth? (laughs) Or like the parting of the Red Sea? Or a resurrection? Okay. You see, that's that's how sin works. there's, There's just never enough signs. We always need another one, another one, and another one. Some of you are constantly saying, for example... Something bad is happening in my life or bad things have happened in my life or something bad is about to happen in my life. And if God doesn't come through, I don't know if I'm going to have anything to do with him anymore. God needs to give me a sign. He needs to answer my prayer. He needs to bring this in or else I won't believe uh, in him. And you know what Jesus says? Jesus says the assumption behind your prayer is the pharisaical assumption that I owe you something. Because you deny the idea that you're a sinner who deserves nothing from me, and that I died for you anyway and gave you everything, because you deny the very idea of grace, you blame your problem, you blame your lack of faith on me, just like the Pharisees did. But don't you realize, however many signs I give you, You'll always want another one. You will always be unhappy. You'll always be restless. And he would say to you, get rid of your proud demandingness and just see grace. And some of you would say, well, I'm not a proud person. I hate myself. I feel like a failure all the time. I feel awful. Do you know what God you know what God is saying here? You know what Jesus is saying here uh, to you? What God is saying to you here is, my son Jesus Christ died on the cross. What more do you want? What more of a sign do you want that I accept you and that I love you? Jesus Christ has already given you the sign. He's given you all, already given you everything you need believe. He's given you the sign. And you say, well, what sign? It's the sign of the cross. On the one hand, there is the yeast of the Pharisees, but on the other hand, there is the bread of heaven. Jesus was the bread of heaven. And on the cross, he was broken for our sin so that there would be plenty for all of us. See, The sign is the sign of the cross. And we can as a culture, we can remove sin from our vocabulary, but we cannot remove the guilt and the shame and the stain of sin in our lives. Only Jesus can do that through his death on the cross. And he would challenge you this morning to look at him on the cross and to believe and to experience the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Have you done that? Have you come to a place in your life where you have sort of drawn a line in the sand and said, I'm going to stop believing in myself, I'm going to stop believing in all of my goodness, I'm going to stop moaning and crying, woe is me, I'm such a bad person, and I'm going to look look at the cross, I'm going to see Jesus there on the cross. And I'm going to trust in him. I'm going to believe in him that what he did on the cross forgives me of my sins. Have you done that? Have you come to that point in your life? If you have not ever come to that point in your life, you could do that right now in the privacy of your seat. And this would be a good day to do it. Jesus would say with urgency, make that decision today. Believe. Maybe you have come to a place where you have believed. You know what you need to do? I said it last week. You need to preach the gospel over and over and over to yourself. I don't mean preach the gospel over and over so that you will be saved over and over. You're only saved once. Once you you believe in Christ, you always have assurance of salvation. That doesn't ever change. But you need to remind yourself of the gospel over and over and over again. You need to remind yourself of the benefits of the gospel over and over again. That Jesus Christ forgave me. I don't... God doesn't owe me anything you need to remind yourself too. When you get into that mood where you're saying, I'm so bad, I'm so terrible, you need to remember, right there on the cross, Jesus dying on the cross, God demonstrated the sign that he loves me and accepts me just as I am today. Preach that gospel over and over and over to yourself. I'd like to ask you if you would to bow your heads with me this morning. If you're one of those you're one of the people that I mentioned earlier that has never come to a place in your life where you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, this would be a good moment to do it. Wherever you've been, whatever you've done, Jesus Christ died on the cross for you. The bread of heaven was broken for you. He is the only way that you can be cleansed of your sin. If you're here this morning and you have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, would you just give thanks in this moment for the sign that God gave you in him, the greatest sign ever, that God loves you and accepts you, validated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Would you just do that now? Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for the sign that we cannot mistake the sign of the cross that reminds us of your love for us, that you accept us. And we acknowledge and we affirm this morning that you didn't owe us that. You owed us nothing but by grace, out of a heart of grace that said, my life for yours. You died on the cross for the sins of all humanity. Lord, would we be people that demonstrate our belief in that by the way that we live our lives. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray and worship today. Amen.